Hey, let's get the party started right off the bat. I mean, this year, Record Store Day drops uh, take place on my birthday, June 12th, so I feel like Triumph's doing this for me specifically. Uh, <laughs> Triumph's been named the Canadian Ambassadors for Record Store Day, and they're doing a 40th anniversary exclusive box set of Allied Forces set for release on my birthday, June 12th, via Round Hill Records. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mike Levine from Triumph. Nice to see you. Rich, good to see you. Yeah, good good to see you. The last time we spoke was by a phone with a cassette recorder. So oh. it's been a... <laughs> flip the tape. Hey, Mike. Well, yeah. I was just saying to Mike off the air, I was like, remember back in the day, you used to have, you know, journalists come down to the venue. You do it in person or you do it over the phone. Now it's like, you know, it's like everything's Zoom and, you know, bad connections. Bad connections, but here we are. So I guess I guess let's just let's just start off with with the actual album album Allied Forces. I mean, it was a force to be reckoned with, especially in the, in the Canadian music scene. Uh, before we get to the release and the whole big thing, just just quickly talk to me about the importance of that album for the band, because to me that's the one where it, it sort of everything exploded, right? Yeah, that's the one that really you know, captured everybody's attention on pretty much a worldwide basis, actually. And uh, uh, it just kind of, we just kept building on that. That was the one that really put us on the map. We went from, uh, you know, playing small arenas to doing big arenas and, uh, you know, selling gold albums to selling platinum albums. So, you know, I think the music spoke for itself on that record. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting now you look back at that record and it's what, like almost, you know, over 40 years old at this point, right? Like 1981 came out? Yeah. So going on to the 40th anniversary of this, it's kind of interesting when I listen back to that record. Like I'm 26 years old and I discovered this stuff by listening to Shome in Montreal and (laughs) hearing the stuff in the mornings, driving, getting on the school bus. And, you know, that was really where I discovered rock and triumph. And I always was really impressed with the sound of that record specifically. Like it was produced really well and the engineering was just done so well. Um, talk a little bit about the scene and being in the studio at that time. Were you guys experimenting with technology and uh, having some fun in the studio? What was what was the vibe like? Well, you know, that was the first album that uh, we did at Metalworks, what we built. Mm. Um, so we could make records in our own place. And we weren't paying rent and watching the clock all the time. But all that'll have to do, we're running out of money. Yeah. um, You blew the whole budget by building the studio. So now you're like, well, we got to make something now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The the, the unfortunate part is, uh, you know, it it has to end at some point. Rick, you can't do another guitar solo. Okay, this one's perfect. Oh, just give me another shot. I'll come in tomorrow morning. I said, Rick, I have to be in New York to master it tomorrow. <laughs> it's already mixed. You can't do anything anymore. Ah, but there's that one bum note. Let me just go in. No, no, no. It's already mastered. Don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, we we had the opportunity to take our time on that record. So yeah. it was. Uh, we were able to write in the studio. We were able to uh, do demos and nice demos. You know, do the bed tracks, put a rough vocal on it, and go. That's a piece of garbage. Throw it out. You know, we can never fix that. Um, right. So it was really advantageous. And the studio, we had really great gear um, that we had acquired over the course of, it was about a year and a half in the building of the studio. But just finding stuff. And, you know, it's, I was in New York at RCA Records, which was our label. They were closing down the recording studio. Oh. At which they had about five in their building. And I had the, the head engineer walk me through everything. I probably bought. Fifty thousand dollars worth of stuff that you know 
that I got for like five grand. <laughs> wow. So you're like, you're walking through the studio like, okay, I'll take that 1176. I'll yeah. take that LA two way. That's right. I bought 10 LA two ways. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so your okay. studio was proper. Yeah. You, you couldn't find them anywhere. Right. Right. Rick and Gillick went, I, I called him. I said, guess what? I, I got a score on a bunch of LA two ways. They said, well, what's that? I said, only, only the best two limiter made it. Yeah. <laughs> only the best compressors ever. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing well i'm yes. sure you used a lot of the la two ways on the vocals on that record because i mean it's it's just really well done and i i still maintain it's one of the best records of the 80s so uh, well thank you like I, I produced that record so i'll take that as a compliment right yeah <laughs> you you produced a lot of the early or a lot of the early work right well, pretty much all about everything regardless you know i was mm. i was hands-on in the studio all the time is it um, safe to say it's 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 your band mike i mean oh well, it was our band yeah, was it was it a real collaborative effort between the three of you? Yeah, I, you know, Gil, um, you know, Gil took care of the touring end and the uh, the money, uh, the bookkeeping. I, you know, we had a staff, but it, that was kind of his his purview. Yeah, um, you know, I took care of the records and the record company and promotion, and uh, and Rick got to sit at home and write songs. It's so. <laughs> <laughs> a good gig. Yeah. Oh, okay, talk to me there just real quick about producing all those uh, early records or, or most of the records at some point, do you not need a set of outside ears to come in and say, Hey guys, you should try this. You know, didn't you want to go to Bob Ezrin or, or any of those guys? Um, why not bring somebody else in? Well, you know, we had a nice little club, right? You know, it was called Mike Rick and Gill. And, and, you know, we brought in outside engineers, right? Like Mike Jones, who was local, we had worked with before on right. the Just the Game album. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he was a great engineer. You know, he was my first choice for, for guys. Uh, but later on, you know, I brought in Eddie Kramer late in the game. Right. Uh, uh, we never surrendered. We worked with a guy named Dave Thoner, uh, who was engin- recording engineer, quote unquote, co-producer as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Those guys had ears, and they were definitely helpful along the way. But to you know, like I love Bob Ezra like a brother, okay. But I could never work with him. (laughs) (laughs) How how come? Uh, He's too. Back then, he was very very aggressive, and he pitched me once. I was in the dentist chair. (laughs) He came in because I was leaving town the next day. He came in. I'm sorry, period, (laughs) honest. He came in, he was wearing this full length fur coat, it was winter time, and he started pitching me while I was <laughs> <laughs> So it was it was physical aggressiveness. <laughs> physical aggressiveness. I was uh, like totally unreal. But you know, Bob's a great producer. I, you know, I, I I give him props, he's brilliant. But yeah, they, yeah. We, we tried to work with Mutt Lang. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, hold on. <laughs> What's yeah, the, yeah was, so what's this Mutt Lang story? I've never heard this. Well, you know, it's, I reached out to him and said, you know, we'd like to work with you. Well, paint a <laughs> picture. Like, what year is this? Like, around the time when he's doing Back in Black or working on Hysteria? So, it was before, a lot before Hysteria. Um, okay. You know, 79, 80, so we're okay, dealing like Highway to Hell time, Back in Black. Uh, and- yeah, and, and, and then almost to 4 to 4 and all that, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, he was brilliant. And, uh, you know, he was very expensive, but his time... Uh, his time was pretty much put because he was so right. good. Do you remember how much Mutt was wanting to charge? I can't. I, it was it was it was more than we'd make in a year on selling records. So it was it, was, <laughs> wow. it would be kind of like uh, a lost leader. 
Jeez. Yeah, but then, it, you know, if you did and it became massive, well, it probably would have paid yeah. for itself. Well, probably, right. you know. But, but, but what was it? He's brilliant. Yeah, talk to me about Mutt, though. It's like, why? what was it about Mutt's work that made you want to gravitate towards wanting to work with him? He, you know, he spent time, he spent a lot of time in the studio. Uh, he uh, developed new sounds. He developed new ways of recording uh, yeah. drums and guitars and vocals. Uh, he had paid his dues. Uh, you know, if you go back to Highway to Hell, it's certainly not the best Sonic record, sonically sounding record I've ever heard in my life. But it was it was a very good record. But it, it, to me, it was the band that made it a good record. It wasn't the production. Yeah. But as as Mutt went on, he got better and better at, at what he did, and got bigger budgets, and was able to uh, uh, use them to create you know the Def Leppard sound and that he then transferred to Shania Twain. You know. So, yeah. And Brian Adams. And, and Brian, yeah. You know, so I uh, you know Bob Rock, we I would have liked to work with for sure. Um, we actually reached out to a guy, a British guy, Martin Birch. Who oh, yeah. Martin Birch, yeah, with White Snake and all those great bands. The purple early on and stuff, you know. So uh, it's not oh, like wow. we didn't we didn't look for people. It's just a question of getting them, availabilities, time frames, schedule. Yeah. But how do you think a producer like Mutt Lang coming in would have affected the sound of Allied Forces, for example? I mean, like. What do you think he would have brought to the band? I mean, would it have still been Triumph had Mutt come in? You know, I don't know. That's that, that's one of those weird things that you you really have no idea uh, how how it would have turned out. Could have been a whole lot better, and it could have been a whole lot worse. You know, so right. <laughs> well, to be fair, with the amount of talent between you guys and the Mutt coming in, I, I don't think it would have been bad. Yeah, you know, no. I don't. I don't think so. You know, it, 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 let's put it this way: it never got to the point where it'd be bad. You just have a party in the ways. You saw his quote, and you were just like, "Yeah, no, I think we're gonna pass." <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though that that his quote was that high at that time. I mean, yeah. I would figure by 1988, after Def Leppard, just like okay, but all right. Well, you know who else said that was, uh, I think it was Duff McKagan. He was saying that they were originally going to work with, with, they were trying to work with Mutt for Appetite for Destruction. And they got his, and he wanted like a hundred grand, like just to walk in for the meeting or something like that. Yeah, that's pretty much the way that's, you know, you're, you're getting near the right figures. Plus yeah, the good. Point. Plus, well, plus hey. the points. <laughs> yeah, well, right. listen, uh, he, he's earned his keep. Um, mm-hmm. Let me just quickly ask you about Record Store Day. Uh, how important is that for for bands and for fans to to have the ability the availability of of uh, product that you can hold you know and and well just start with that just the importance of that uh, you know I grew up being in record stores on the weekends flipping through twelve inch vinyl records yeah right and that was the, the course of discovery because. There really wasn't much radio in Toronto. You know, Chum FM hadn't gone out of the air yet right. with anything progressive. And everything was top 40 and John Chum, which is, you know, the big station here. But, you know, you didn't get to hear half the songs that were charting. Like Wilson Pickett in the Midnight Hour was number one on Chum. They never played the record. Never. Really? <laughs> never played in the Midnight Hour? They never played it. Uh, Hold on, I'm coming. Seven day, never played it. But what it about uh, they play like shotgun and stuff? Uh, nope. Wow. No, if it was black, they didn't play. Interesting. Because there was at that point in time, because I'm talking, you know, late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, there was like 
12 black people in the city. Mm. Wow. So, so we used to have to listen to, to hear those signs. We used to do a, a station in Buffalo called WUFO, Buffalo, mm. and uh, WBLKFM. And they were hot black stations. And, and there was two stores that carried downtown that carried all the, the singles by Pickett and Savage Dave and uh, uh, Diddley and, and, you know, Arthur Connolly and, yeah. you know, all that. So I, you know, I grew up, you know, playing an RD band. So those songs were like ingrained in my DNA later on. So you were heavily influenced by all that black music. Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, it was the best stuff. Of course, the yeah. Beatles come along and the Stones and Zap and uh, Purple and Hendrix and yeah. Dennis and, and it's but, amazing you know, to, to listen to that stuff now because the musicianship on those records, it's just, like they were just powerhouse musicians in the pocket. Oh God, you know, frighteningly beyond belief. Yeah. But but you know, again, back to the record store thing. It's it's really important, you know. Like we used it as, as a means of discovery. So you'd look at it, you know, you go, "Wow, what a neat cover! The music must be good." <laughs> right? Yeah. If it's a lousy cover, you go, "The music must be bad." <laughs> well, hold on a second. Let me ask you, Mike. It's like, what constituted a good cover in your eyes? Well, you're, if you were, you were 12, 13, looking through the record store, through you know, going through the record, you saw something. Like, what stood out to you? Oh, geez. Uh, it, I think you know. Initially, there wasn't much art, right? It was all the you know, picture of the band or the artist, right? right? Meet the Beatles. It, it, meet the Beatles. Uh, uh, the Stones always had great packaging, I thought. Their, their, their covers, they really thought them out, I, I found anyway. Mm. Um, and going back, even kind of around the same time, maybe, but like Chicago Transit Authority, that first album, the double album. Yeah. Um, you know, with just the logo on it. And that was it. And I went, wow, that's cool. And then I listened to it, and I, I spent God knows how many hours dropping the needle trying to top Pizza Terra's bass parts. Mm. He was an incredible, all those guys were incredible players. I mean, it's just they, they, the absolute greatness of some of those bands will go on forever, you know? Yeah. I the, hope. I hope. One of the things that I find about Record Store Day, because I do find it very important for, for the industry, though, uh, they they don't cater to people who want CDs. They they keep the, the physical product to vinyl um will this be made available on cd at some point and 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 should you sort of cater to everybody who wants to buy a physical product um yes and no uh this one in particular we debated whether to put a cd in the package right right and we went well the people that are really going to buy this box are going to be the hardcore fans they're already going to have cds and then probably vinyl albums and so how do you make that allied forces album different right so we adjusted the logo um, for the box, and there's a picture disc, you know, and that's that's really cool. So it's like something different, something to have in a hold. Yeah. And then you know we went through. We almost did like a focus group to find out what the fans really wanted, what would turn their cranks, you know, because what we think they want, they probably go, I don't care about that stuff. You know? <laughs> well, that's it. You know, it's kind of smart to ask the fans what what do you want? Yeah. Right. Because they're the I ones that know. buy it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm so, looking at the um, I'm looking at what the box includes. So you got a picture disc of the original Allied Forces studio record. You got two LPs of Live in Cleveland from '81. You got a seven-inch single of the tribute 2021 version of Allied Forces and Magic Power Live from Ottawa in 1982. That's never been released before. 
Correct. Yeah. Mike, we like that unreleased stuff. Yeah, you got an 11 by 17 Maple Leaf Gardens poster. It's a Canada exclusive, by the way. You can only get it in Canuckville. Uh, and a 24-page booklet featuring rare photos and behind-the-scenes, plus Allied Forces essay. And there's all kinds of other cool little knickknacks. You got a retro tour book, retro tour poster. You got some. Uh, you got a backstage pass in there. Guitar uh, picks. Handwritten lyrics. I mean, this is a proper, proper package. And for any diehard fan out there, that's, I, I mean, this is just perfect. I think you guys really hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I'm really happy. I wanted to put more stuff in it, but then it got to the point where the record company said, you know how much this is going to cost to ship the box? (laughs) (laughs) Shipping is more expensive than the product. (laughs) It already weighs enough, you know, but you're going to need a a, a dolly and a truck to to move the thing around. What What else did you want to put in it? Ah, oh, geez, you know, I, I wanted to put another piece of vinyl. We were going to do like a whole vinyl thing mm. um, of, of everything. And that's where the weight issue came into it. Yeah. And then it was really hard to, to curate everything. So, uh, you know, we hired, we made the record company hire on it. You guys must know Andy Curran. Yes. Yes. I'm talking to Andy Curran tomorrow morning, actually. Oh, are you really? So yes. And, Andy put the whole thing together. So he, oh, wow. he went through our archives at the U of T. Where we where we donated every doll, you name it, we donated it, and then he went upstairs to the attic at Metalworks and got really dusty and dirty, and found mm. some amazing shit. Just amazing. Wow, Andy's great. Yeah, he's fabulous, and he worked his ass off. I mean, it wouldn't be anywhere close to what it is now without him. Yeah, I can. Uh, you know, um, I'm not going to ask you the reunion question, but I'm going to ask you in, in a different way. Fans have always asked for you guys to get back together. What do you think is the appeal of the band and the music where here we are 40 years later and there are still fans out there that every day, every question, every Twitter message board will say, we want those three guys together. What did you do that made fans care so much? I, yeah, we were pretty lucky, but we worked really hard. You know, we, right. you know, we tried, we, we tried our best. We took our fans into consideration. Like for right. example, um, uh, from from a show point of view, it was always about the fans. What can we put on that on the stage that's going to turn their cranks? I mean, it's one thing to sit there and watch three guys play music, right? But that's not what concerts are about. It's a, it's about the production as well. So, um, yeah, big show. It was always a big show. Lots yeah. of lights. It was just it was phenomenal. Yeah, we won awards for the show. You know, Performance Magazine gave us Innovators of the Year award yep. a couple of times for for doing stuff nobody else did. So we had extra dough, we put it back on the shelf. And, but it was, you know, we used the effects, um, I'll call it uh, not over the top. You know, a lot of bands, you know, the pyro goes off every song, they'll spare me that, you know. Blazers every song, very lights every song. You know, it's like I, I see a board looking at it. So what we did, you know, we used the effects to enhance the music. Right. And, and that, to, you know, to give it more power, when it needed a little more power or some element of surprise or a gas, a gas, we used to call it the net gas factor. You know, what good is an effect if people don't go, oh, what the hell was that? Right. <laughs> so that's yeah. what we went for. And I think, you know, we had loyal fans. It was like a ball team. You know, every year or every year and a half, we'd be back in their city and, and, and they'd, be, they'd be waiting for the ball team to come. And, but it was like that with everybody. It's like that with Rush and Journey and sure. Six and you know, like the but tour. still, it, it's got to be flattering that forty years later, there's there's still. I mean, there are some bands that try hard to get present, try hard to get mentioned. They don't. 
And you guys have sort of been on the sidelines and every, every year or every day, they got to get back together. Oh, those, those guys, they got to get back. I mean, it's amazing the love for the band. Well, well you guys got to know this too. I mean, you're, you're both music junkies. Yeah. Like there's certain songs or certain bands that become the soundtrack of your life, right? Yeah. It's the first, first time you went on the date with your wife and you happen to go to a concert or you're, you're in the car and you heard Magic Power on the radio or something like that and you bonded over that song. Uh, as, as we all do, there's songs that, that have really deep meaning to all of us. And, so, and some that don't, but you still know every word, pretty much. Yeah. You know? So I, you know, I think that's got a lot to do with it. Like we did uh, you know, a fan event uh, for the documentary. This yeah, the that was great. You know, it got like 150 of the absolute hardcore uh, uh, triumph fans to show up uh, on their own dime to go and look at memorabilia and talk to us and blah, blah, blah. And we surprised them by playing. And they, you know, basically, you know, shit their pants. Yeah, <laughs> they did. It was a total surprise. Uh, so uh, those fans, you know, I know, we got to meet them and talk to them, right? And they're just beside themselves with love and enthusiasm and, and the, what the band means to them. So that interaction with the fans sometimes really, you know, A, it humbles a lot. But B, <laughs> you also realize that, uh, you know, you you've created something that's going to last a long, long time. It's something to be very proud of and lucky that you got a chance yeah. to do it. And let me, uh, let me just quickly follow up on the, on the, on the soundtrack of your life, because for me, when we, when we talked triumph, it was sport of Kings, the sport of Kings. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. Um, Cause you've got clink that comes in. You've got uh, Tom Trumbo that comes in. You're not producing it. And and I don't mean this disparagingly, but it was very slick. It was a real slick, much music MTV album that I just happened to love. I think I think it's terrific. What was that like for you? Did, did the record company come to you and say, listen, we've got Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and all these bands and you need to do something like that? Or did you just sort of gravitate to like, hey, let's just try something new. Let's 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 make it as radio friendly as we can, because it's a great album. It's, it's, it's interesting because. Um... Uh, during the course of the documentary, that plays a major part in the documenting of that record and what right. happened as a result of the negative fallout amongst the, the band members. So I'll save that story for the doc. But mm, uh, wow. in, in, in general, Irving Azoff, who we all know is the biggest fan in the music business, was the yep. president of MCA. They were the worst record label of the business. He had been there like, for rock bands, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he signed, we called it Music Cemetery of America. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> Irving comes over and we were we were available for signing. Uh, we had a court case with RCA, another long story, but uh, you know RCA agreed to let us go if somebody buy us out. So it was between Irving and David Kappa. And Irving says, oh, you know, I got the worst record label, but I got the most money. Let's go have lunch. <laughs> Basically, that's how you take the deal. So and, and Tom Trumbo was the guy that told Irving to sign us. He was the AR guy that worked for MCA. That stands for Artist of Repertoire, I think. I don't know if they, they still exist anymore. Part of. Yeah. Uh, They're busy maybe. finding people on Instagram and uh, TikTok to make one-hit wonders. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tom, as I found out later, like in the documentary, I thought it was Irving's idea that, you know, he, he was looking for hits. You know, needed something to put across the top for you, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, you know, we should hire a, a big-name producer. Uh, Not Clank. Uh, no. 
was oh. Ron Devison. Oh, UFO. Uh, Ron Hart, uh, Zeppelin. Yeah, Strangers in the Night. Yeah. Um, so uh, Ron, so we agreed to go record in L.A. to the Fed Tracks in L.A. And uh, Ron was, um, put it this way, you know, he'd come up to Toronto a few times. He'd done some pre-production work. We got along great. Uh, he did a lot of respect for the guy. and good chops and everything. And, you know, we agreed on a direction. He was supposed to bring these three great songs to the project. And uh, Mike Clink was Ron's engineer. Mike had never produced a record before. He just worked for, for Ron. Mm. So anyway, we, we end up uh, not having a great time in LA, but we're back in Toronto doing the overdubs of that work. And uh, uh, I'm in the lounge watching uh, much music, I guess, or they're around the there, there's some music show. But I see a, a video of a band from Vancouver who I have never heard of doing one of the quote unquote exclusive songs never been recorded that Ron brought to the project. Oh, oops. What <laughs> band was that, by the way? I went, uh, 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 are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. I would have been upset. Yeah. You know, it, it, it turned out that of the three songs that Ron brought, all of them had been recorded by someone and they all had been stiffed. For the uninitiated, that meant they were bombs. They were disasters. Wow. Uh, so, you know, we had a bust up over that, and uh, Ron couldn't take it anymore because he was either he was pissed that we found out, or he just left. One day he wasn't there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> left with his tail between his legs. Yeah, yeah, he really manned up on that one. Yeah. Do you so, remember what the song was and what the band was? Oh, uh, God. <sighs> Honestly, it's one of those things where you just want to put put it right out of your mind. Right, right, your mind. So, yeah. so then it is sport because I love Sporting King. So, is it is it a sore spot for you? Do you consider it controversial? Do you do you dislike it because I thought it was great. Oh, it was. It's, it, it, it became an interpersonal problem with the band. Mm. Really? Yep. And uh, it was it was like just a horrible horrible experience for all of us. Mm. Well, does it give you any comfort that I like it? At least, I, 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 I'm, I'm really glad you like it. Listen, Mike. I know. Listen, Mike. I'm sorry. I, I know that it broke up the band and y'all wanted to murder each other, but fuck, it's a great album. I like it. I no, thought I think, it was. It's, it's, it turned out pretty good, but we had to replace those three songs. Right. And, and, and a we, you know, Trumbo, uh, Tom Trumbo, convinced us to keep even Rick and Gil were on board with him to keep Clank on board. So I wanted to fire him too. I wanted every taste of Ron Nevison right out of my mouth. Wow. <laughs> and I like Clank. He's a great guy. You know, uh, but <laughs> I just wanted to clean house. So Clank stays on and, uh, uh, you know, we're recording, but we got to find more songs. Mm. So we look for more songs. Rick, Rick you know, was um, okay. He went to a couple of songs. It was all right. Blah, blah, blah. One day I go to the studio and Clank's disappeared. <laughs> well, like what happened now? I said, where, you know, let's, let, well, let's do some overdubs. Where's, uh, let's do Tears of the, you know, Tears of the Rain needs some work. Clank took that with him to LA. I said, excuse me? <laughs> Mike Clank took the two inch master step. Oh, yeah, he's starting to mix it record plant next week. I go, really? That's interesting. I wonder what he forgot to tell the band. And we're still, we're still three songs short of a load for an album. Oh, man. That's amazing. 
it's, it's, it's just like it goes on the gong show. It continues. Yeah. And, you know, we recorded. Somebody's out there. Rick wrote. I said, Rick, go home. I don't care how long it takes. You can be hit. Somebody's out there is great. Just yeah, your, just real song. quick, the uh, the just one night that that Eric Martin from Mr. Big and Neil yeah. Sean of Journey, how did that get to you? Um, Jesus, that, no, that, that wasn't one of the Nevison songs because we would have known that was Eric Martin and said blah blah blah. Right. So uh, I don't know actually where that came from. Maybe Gil said, you know, there's a song I think I can sing the shit out of, you know, it's like I heard it on the radio, but whatever. It's like it was never a big hit for, for Eric. Right. So, um, you know, why don't we give that a shot? Okay. Well, turned great. Turned out great. Well, but, I, it, but I produced somebody's out there because nobody else was there. <laughs> we had used the Metalworks engineers to record it. Mm. It's amazing. Just amazing. Somebody out there is amazing. And, and I, I have... First of all, that's the single that compelled me to buy the record. And I remember much music doing the whole, it's the premiere, it's the this, the new triumph. I was sold. So thanks much music because I bought that album, you know, after after that video and that song came out, I was right down to the whatever A&A or Sam's or whatever it was back then. And I plunked down my money for it. Anyway. That's great. Well, so the record sold pretty well, you know, and the, the, the tour went really well and all that, you know, but, you know, the, 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 it didn't go well with the band. It wasn't the musical part of it. Was it was the, the business part of it. It was the recording part of it and the business part and the, uh, what it did to us emotionally. Wow. Well, 40 years later, here I am to say, it's okay. It's okay. I liked it. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I don't think he's crying over it, Mitch. <laughs> Oh, well. I'm just here to provide comfort for bands. That, that's right. what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys, guess what? We should do this once a week. Here, you know, you'd be good psychologists. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should. We'll be um, a therapist. Bring us into the next recording session. We'll 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 keep things on track. <laughs> well, well, just real quick here. Speaking of therapy, was the the documentary for Crave therapeutic in the sense where you re- revisited some stuff? You had the fans at the show. You played together. Did, what did it sort of tie it all together and just went, yeah, you know, let's really celebrate this band. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really real. Like banger films, they were, you know, yeah, just Sam Dunn. Yes. Sam is beautiful. I, what they yep. do, they have a great organization. They do great work. They do research. They yep. do everything. You know, we help them a lot to spend more money than they wanted to, but <laughs> Hey guys, you didn't really capture this, but right? you want to rethink that just a little bit. <laughs> What do you mean? We think it's really good. We say, well, we don't. You know, maybe you can fix it up a little more. But <laughs> they, they were so cooperative. They gave us, you know, when they fought us on stuff, and we said, okay, you know, you're the documentarians, and it has to be in there. But mm. uh, I was a couple of weeks ago, we we're just laying the audio in. Uh, there was a mix. Uh, they wanted me to approve the mix before they laid it in of the, the whole movie. Right. And that uh, uh, was great because I had seen the movie in months. Yeah, there, there, there was a lot of stuff that I'd never seen. There's an animation I'd never seen. In fact, that stuff that were just like little stickmen before. Now they were like creatures with color and stuff. Wow. <laughs> but it is, it is really, I, you know, it tells a story of the band. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. Uh, it's got, it's just a great story. What the hell they cry? Yeah. Well, well, Sam does great work. I mean, everything he's yep. done. Uh, he's got Martin Popoff that helps out every so often. They 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 get it. They they, they just get it, and it's great. Yeah, I saw I saw a thing on TV the other uh, the other night. I was just flipping around. 
I went, what is this? There's Neil Sedaka, and there's Andy Kim. And what is this? It was all about the Brill Building in New York and uh, the right songwriting back then, and Daryl King and Jerry Goffin and Beaver yeah. Stoller. And I went, I got lucky enough to meet most of those people at the Brill yeah. Building. So I was like fascinated by it because I was just a kid when that happened for me. Yeah. But I saw right at the time that the credits, there was a little wee Baker Films credit. And I wrote Sam up. I said, Did you do that show? He goes, That's a whole series on <laughs> TV. I went, really? Yeah, it's called, I can't remember what the name of it now. This is, this is pop, I think. Yeah. yeah. And they, 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 they did an Alice Cooper thing a few years ago. That was great, yeah. too. So, yeah. yeah. And, and they, uh, they, they documented Heavy Montreal or, or for the global metal experience. Anyway, uh, good, yeah. good band. Good guys. Yeah, good. great guys. Great guys. So, you know, we were really happy that, that they, A, they agreed to do it and B, how, how great they were to work with and how, how great the films they were. So, great. I consider us very lucky on that. So is that, out yet or, is that out yet or it's coming out? No, it's still not finished. There's, okay. it's, it's, um, you know, it's, COVID has just been a killer. Ruined everything. They're, they're waiting for the Ron it. Nevison interview. <laughs> yeah, there's a Ron Nevison interview in there. <laughs> they're just waiting to get that uh, they're done. Still wait, they're still waiting for those three songs. <laughs> we, we, we wanted to have Ron, Ron come in and then have, have somebody with an AK-47 come in and, and shoot him. <laughs> Just shoot the tape machine. <laughs> as the three songs play in the background, as the yeah. as the sa- yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so record store day this year. It's July, It's June twelfth, and there's a, apparently on July seventeenth. There's a there's a second. But my question is so. Is is this box set only going to be available on June twelfth? Because you know everybody runs to record store day. Each record store only has a certain amount of you know box sets or copies mm-hmm. of each thing. If I go to like my my favorite record store here, and if I don't reserve one, like it's probably going to be sold out. So is is there going to be a way for fans that can't get to the record store on June twelfth or are afraid to go out because of pandemic and everything? Like, is there a way for them to get it online or go to another store? Like they, they could order it. You know, I, I, I wish the record company would have thought of those kinds of things because we thought of them. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, okay, we need backup to be able to you know fill the holes if possible where people can't get it. Right. And it's a limited run, so there's not a ton of them. I mean, I think there's only 20, 1,200 for America, 300 for Canada, and 700 for Great Britain and Europe. So wow. there's nothing, nothing there. I, I would call it there really isn't much product out there. Yeah, that's really limited run. Wow, that's... Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna call my store right after this. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, au 33 tour, put one on the side. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, yeah. you can check it out. Record Store Day Canada on June 12th. The awesome uh, Record Store Day exclusive 40th anniversary box set of Allied Forces. It's coming out. All kinds of really great knickknacks. And if you're a fan of Triumph or music in general, like you're not going to get a better Record Store Day exclusive kind of package. This is just a proper package. So uh, yep. you should be really proud of it. It looks like it's it looks like it's going to be awesome. So I'm going to have to get my hands on one. Yeah, it's really cool. Hang on one sec. I just I just saw it for the first time yesterday. When oh, you have oh, it? Oh, oh, look at that. Wow. Yeah, it looks heavy, man. Good good quality cardboard here. This is That's no... A, oh, wow. That's, That's a proper box. box set. Yeah, there you go. You know, backstage pass. Hello. Hey, now. Hello. Oh. But it's uh, it's really cool. Probably weighs four and a half, five pounds, something like that. Nice. 
Well, yeah, I the 180 know. gram vinyl these days is uh, it's it's really thick and high quality. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, that'll add some weight. You know, when they started talking about vinyl and grams, I went, "What happened to cocaine?" You know, it's uh... <laughs> it's true. Oh my lord! See, so that's that's perfect. Anyway, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. And and remember, Sport of Kings is a fabulous album. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. <laughs> but Ron Nevison is a prick, so don't forget right. that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh on that absolute pleasure and and thank you for all the music over the years you know i remember back in the early 80s there was this sort of de facto battle that the fans had it's rush versus triumph and i never bought into that i always thought fuck it enjoy both just enjoy both yeah plenty of room for 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 great bands absolutely you know it's uh it's it's funny because you'd see uh, you know, at a Rush show, you'd see Rush shirts. At a Triumph show, you'd see Triumph shirts. At an yep. ACDC show, you'd see ACDC shirts. You know, it was yep. the uniform of, yep. of the band for the concert. But it didn't mean the ACDC band didn't like Rush or didn't like Triumph, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I think it's just still the whole story was three-piece bands from Toronto. And right. Story, right. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Good matchup. Good matchup. Yeah. Oh, well. Now, who could take who in a bar fight? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Mike could do circles around Getty in the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mike. Great pleasure. And, and let's do another one before 10 years or 15 years yeah. or whatever it's been. You guys got it. This has been great. Thanks so much, Mitch and Jeremy. Very cool. Merci bien. Cheers. Thanks. So great to meet you.